This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, and this is podcast, I think, number 42. Uh, and with me, uh, Johan Edebo in Sweden. Hi, Johan. Hello. Hiroyuki Hamada in New York. Hiroyuki, hello. Hi. Uh, Omar Khan in Sri Lanka. Omar, hello. Hi there. <laughs> and uh, Corey Morningstar is back. I am pleased to announce uh, in Toronto. Hi, Corey. Um, you guys are you are you keep getting better with your hellos, but there's still there's still work to be done. Um, you're also kind of timid when you say hi. Um, I I there's a lot of things to talk about, and and we haven't done. Um, a podcast in in a little longer than usual as it as it sort of plays out um and it feels as though a number of things have happened although i also feel as though that might well be an illusion uh uh because i'm i personally am feeling increasingly um I don't know, hallucinogenic or something. Uh, the the uh, I I find myself waking up in the morning and thinking this is such an unreal situation at this point, mm. and it's gone on for such a long time. And I and I know I'm repeating myself, uh, but but it's but it's staggering to me. And one of the topics I wanted to touch on uh, was the vaccine passports uh omar i wanted to hear your report from sri lanka and i also know johan you had a topic um to introduce relevant to all this too so maybe we'll start with johan yeah well, sure I, I've, got, I've got a lot of things to say it's been a while as you said so a lot of things to talk about uh, and one thing I would like to have your input on is this, uh, the last thing I mentioned before we started, the, on the, the turn towards uh, China and the embrace of the Wuhan lab narrative in the corporate media. It's, uh, it's been on Off Guardian, and I think CJ Hopkins has talked about it. Uh, and and the, the crew of uh, Wikispooks mentioned this a week back, that like how we're suddenly seeing this major shift in the propaganda <clears throat> towards affirming this Wuhan lab conspiracy theory as it was called initially. And the idea was it was struck down by the, the narrative making machinery a year ago or something, but now it seems to be happily embraced by the, by the corporate controlled media. And, and I think this is a really interesting development because uh, aside from, from like portraying China as the heel or, or the bad guy, it's going to give the COVID narrative uh, extra plausibility by connecting it to the, the body of geopolitical propaganda demonizing Russia and China already. And I think it's going to give credence to the extraordinary measures taken because the message is now that we're not dealing with an ordinary virus, but something sinister, something engineered, and then all bets are off in a sense. Uh, I also think it works as a kind of diversion from the this uh, super media cycle of COVID, kind of what I think was the, the deal with the BLM protests during last year, like a diversion that renews and strengthens engagement with the, the following news cycle. This a bit of variation is key to keep people interested, you know. Uh, 
And additionally, I think it will be spun to render the corporate media more credible because now, now they have changed their minds in light of new convincing evidence. So you and I should really trust them. Uh, do you have any, any perspectives on this narrative shift, all of you? Well, I think uh, that... I have some... Yeah, go ahead, Hiro Yuki, please. No, that was me, Omar. Oh, oh, yeah, Omar, I'm sorry. <laughs> Omar, <laughs> please. Not very much alike, which is... Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah. But anyway, I, I can aspire to his wisdom anyway. But um, so, look, uh, just a couple of things. Um, one is that, yes, we might think that the media have changed their mind, but not all media. The New York Times has yet to give one word mm. of reference to the Fauci leaked uh, emails. Um, so, and of course, if you were on MSNBC, you wouldn't know anything had been leaked. Um, so uh, I have a, I'll just put it in brief. I think CJ Hopkins, Off Guardian, all of those concerns are correct, that now it's meant as a feint, and this has got to be the worst biological weapon in history, uh, if it was created that way, and that sort of makes it seem implausible. Uh, on the right. other hand, I also think nobody, we can, I don't think it's necessarily the case that it was designed as a mass murder weapon. It could have been designed for exactly what it did, uh, mm -hmm. which is uh, go and infect a lot of people, not necessarily kill a lot of people at this stage, but set it up for the vaccine passport, as you suggested, uh, John, if that was uh, the end game, that doesn't mean it couldn't have been reverse engineered out of Wuhan, uh, sure. you know, uh, you know, just somebody playing chess at a high level, multi-dimensional chess. <laughs> I, I do think finally um, that in terms of it is easy to get lost because it's so fascinating to read the recent revelation of Fauci as if there aren't larger currents, mm -hmm. if there isn't larger complicity, the attempt to decimate life as we know it, wherever this originated is the real story. Right. The real story is not one man weaving, you know, wielding his evil baton, uh, but it's the sort of in sync falling of the mm. civil libertarian dominoes as if this had been queued up. Yeah, I think this is a I think this is a core issue uh, and and a couple of things. One is the this this pivot uh, to uh, China being the origin of the uh, virus, the Wuhan lab, <clears throat> it feels like a very convenient bit of like Orientalist um, mm. propaganda. That's number one. Um, number two, when you step back and look at the 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 from the widest possible perspective, look at this whole last year and a half. You, you have to ask a couple of questions. One is uh, we had the Great Reset and the Green New Deal, and, and we've talked about that, and this was clearly connected somehow in some way um, at, at its origin uh, with, with the pandemic, with the announcement of this pandemic mm -hmm. and the clear fear-mongering that, that was disseminated from, from day one all the way back to those first pictures of hazmat-suited, um, you know, 
health workers and bodies on the street in China, a picture that then disappeared um, from view um, and never to be seen again. Uh, but there's something else that that and this always worries me because when one starts talking about the agenda, what the conspiracy is, because conspiracies exist, it doesn't explain everything. And and the other facet to it, there's a there's a term in the it's actually a military term, military story fable uh, called the bus to Abilene. And the bus to Abilene is there's a family sitting on the porch a um, hundred miles from Abilene in a little rural community one Sunday afternoon. And the father says, gee, you know, maybe it'd be nice to take a drive into Abilene one Sunday. And nobody wants to go to Abilene. He doesn't want to go to Abilene. But the mother says, yes, I haven't been to Abilene in ages. And the little boy goes, yes, I'd love to go to Abilene. That's a great place. And they all pile in the station wagon and they drive for two hours to Abilene through the heat. And on a Sunday afternoon, there's no decent food in Abilene. They eat a crappy lunch and they drive back and realize when they get home exhausted that nobody had wanted to go to Abilene to begin with. So it's a little bit a parable of groupthink to some degree, but it's slightly different. Um, and, and the difference is goes a long way to explaining um, a lot of the 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 sort of passive obedience of governments like the Norwegian government um, to these lockdowns. It was the bus to Abilene. Uh, so, so that factors into it too. It's, it's like the coercive nature of, of, the, of the core agenda here that we're talking about or pointing towards, um, I think happened much with much less resistance than the planners had anticipated. That's my guess. Um, but but I don't know. Corey, yeah. Sorry, I just want to add on to Johan's reference to um, Black Lives Matter. I mean that basically with all this stuff, if you can if you can frame it, if you can frame the story, the narrative, you can sell it, right? And that's so right off the hop. That's what we see right across the board, the framing and the in the the framing of the story and Black Lives Matter works closely with Purpose, um, which is the PR arm of Avaz, which um, their specialty is behavioral change. And so that's all about um, corporate power seizing and harnessing the, the energy to quote unquote, to get what you want, right? So now we see this huge thing, it's called new power, harnessing energies to get what you want. And so again, like all the all movements, Black Lives Matter included, um, you know, that, that that's again part, I mean, obviously there's um, independent groups that do legitimate work and everything like that. I'm not saying there's not, but at the, at the highest level, they're integrated, you know, with the ruling class, um, those structures that insulate and protect and expand the ruling class, right? And corporate power. And so there's that, I just want to mention that. Um, I was gonna talk about something else. Oh yeah, just how, you know, the NGOs, I think part of the problem, how we've got to this level of compliance um, and complete domestication is that, 
you know, when unions were really powerful back in the day in the 60s, 70s, when organizations were grassroots and were legitimate, I think people started feeling that they didn't have to take, you know, be involved in the issues anymore. They could just donate, you know, 10 or 20 bucks to the organization and Sierra Club or whoever would do the work and you didn't really have to worry about it. And in a way, I was thinking how Facebook, how everyone, all the users are like the free labor, you know, the exploited labor stolen right. by Facebook. Uh, the NGOs do the same thing with the volunteers and all the people spreading their memes and messages. And that's the same thing. They're all volunteers. They're doing the labor for free. And, that, and you know, they only have power by the number of their membership. You take that away, they don't have any power. And so you've got, even with um, the climate straits, you've got, you're able to exploit and use the energy of all these people that you take for free to strengthen the corporate, um, you know, the corporate design or the, or the corporate ideology sought, right? Whatever that um, movement is framed to, to do, is designed to do. And yeah, and it's crazy because the CEOs of these corporations, I or sorry, the NGOs, I think what the lowest paying CEO for maybe three fifty is between one and two hundred thousand, right? Like the average yeah. pay, I mean, these are six figure numbers, you know, three hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, seven hundred thousand. You know, those are average numbers. Right. And then you have all the people volunteering for free and donating their last $5, you know, left over out of their pension. Anyway, I'm just rambling a bit there, but. No, that I, I just wanted to add one thing that you just reminded me of. Um, the way in which the, the propaganda has shifted, it's not just the shift to, to Wuhan um, with that story. But I saw an article the other day in Spiked, uh, Spiked Online, and Spiked Online is um, has gone through a couple of ownership ownership changes. But um, the guy who owns it now has connections to American intelligence and so forth, um, and they've worked very closely with Hill and Knowlton, the Madison Avenue. Um, marketing firm, advertising firm that brought you the babies torn from incubators um, prior to the invasion of Iraq. They work with the U.S. government all the time. They're a massive um, Madison Avenue firm. And, and Spike has been hysterically pro-GM down the line for the last 10 years. Uh, they are one of the big cheerleaders for everything GM. And they published an article this week that was uh, very critical of the lockdowns and very critical of the vaccine. And so you have to wonder, um, this, is, this is when, at least from my head begins to spin, because I think, well, what, why are they doing that now? You know, um, it's, it is that, as Omar said, it's, it's three-dimensional chess. Um, and and it's very it's very difficult to 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 keep in focus uh, the the different forces at work and and um, uh, somebody mentioned this week um, the the famous Biederman's chart of coercion 
and it fits exactly what has happened um, in terms of propaganda to, to the whole pandemic narrative. It's it's quite interesting. Um, John, but yeah. when, John, when yeah, you go ahead. Said GM, are you saying is that genetic modification? I didn't know what you meant, GM. Yeah, genetic modification of seeds, genetic modification of mosquitoes, genetic modification of, you know. UV. That's all biotech. Yeah, yeah. They're, so they're a big cheerleader for that. Yeah. And it was strange to see this, this article um, uh, critical of, of this GM vaccine and of, and of the lockdown story. And, and, and they were quoting... Um, medical experts in quotation marks that uh, were critical of things. And, and it was a, it was a strange, really inexplicable story to see um, on their website. So that's um, exactly uh, the same as uh, what Corey was saying about uh, uh, nonprofit organizations uh, setting the framework for the uh, right, narratives right. Uh, offering, you know, one side of the uh, conversation and the other side as well, so that the uh, uh, everything is going to stay within the uh, uh, corporate schemes. Right. Um, John. Um, yeah. Just um, so a couple of things, and I might as well get in the Sri Lankan report here. Please do. Yeah. Um, but but just to say one thing, I think um, I think the narrative as to who's attacking whom. I think you know they found various scapegoats to throw under the bus, and uh, you know they just want to pivot back to the larger agenda. So if it doesn't work through stratagem A, they figure we'll be distracted enough soon enough that they can come at it from another angle. So I think it is three-dimensional chess. What happened in Sri Lanka was we had quite a week. I first had Peter McAuliffe, who I think everybody here knows of or has seen some of his uh, testimony and his tireless campaigning. He's been one of the most vocal proponents of early treatment. He did a podcast, which, well, you know, um, John, because you've uh, linked it. Yeah. And one of the points he made, not just for Sri Lanka, but for everybody, is that he was a pro-vaccine person who now does ardently tells everybody, don't do it. And he said what persuaded him was very simple, that if they genuinely believed it was about protection, they wouldn't want to jab people who had been infected already, no. because natural immunity, we demonstrated again and again, confers long-lasting protection. Children would not be an issue because they're not at risk. So they would simply be talking about those who are vulnerable at risk, or if they even bought the asymptomatic sham, uh, maybe a slightly larger demographic. But he said, no, there's a mania to get a jab into every arm. And he said, it's, it's horrifying. And then working on the early treatment, when he sees the attacks against some of the protocols like ivermectin and others, he said he knows of factories that have been burned he knows of pressure that's been, uh, you know, so India was largely saved by some of these protocols and now their health ministry is trying to change the protocol, doubtless under a lot of WHO pressure, but they can safely do so now because the Indian states took their own initiative. Then later in the week in Sri Lanka, I was asked to do a town hall uh, for, for the, uh, you know, the populace, so to speak, managers and others who had questions. And um, Panda, and I think most of you know Panda. Uh, this is a mm -hmm. research 
Foundation, Nick Hudson of Panda was on there with me and he made some comments about the Gates Foundation. And this group that had sponsored it, and I won't give their name because I really, <laughs> that wouldn't be nice. But the next morning, apparently, we were told we, they were wanted to pull the plug on the presentation to the policymakers because they might lose all their Gates Foundation funding. Huh. Because uh -huh. out here in Sri Lanka, Nick Hudson made a comment at the tail end of my hour and a half presentation on COVID fact and fiction and mentioned that you should take your life in your hands and not let Gates funded WH. Well, by the next morning, the clamps were on and we were under vicious attack. It was extraordinary. I have not seen a, a, and a pincer movement to suppress move <laughs> as quickly or as personally. Um, and then, well, we managed to, uh, fortunately by that time, the people who had listened in were determined that the policymakers would hear us. So we managed to come out from under the umbrella of this group and we presented to advisors, task force members, Ministry of Health officials, and these three guys did a great job. Peter McAuliffe, uh, Harpal Mangat, who's been involved with the India turnaround and with um, the uh, monoclonal antibodies and a transfusion center he's helped set up in Delhi. And then of course, Jay Bhattacharya, mm -hmm. uh, one of the great Barrington co-authors explaining why lockdowns don't work. And I have to say, it was, a, it was a wonderful exchange, though very threatening to some people. They did it very gracefully. And I can't tell you yet if it'll have any effect, but the requests we've had for Peter's suggested treatment protocols, for Jay's slides, for reopening society through focus protection via Panda, and any kind of distillation. And the video link has been overwhelming. Uh, we've had some interests since then coming out of Malaysia and Indonesia asking if they could do something similar. So it could be nothing. It could be a drop in the bucket. It could be a, you know, just shouting in the wind. But it was a fascinating experience. No, it's it is fascinating. And I and I think really um, germane to this whole discussion. Uh, Varun has joined us. Uh, Varun Mater in, I believe, still New Delhi. Hi, Varun. Hi, sorry I'm late. No, no, it's quite all right. I'm glad we got everybody here. Um, yeah, yeah, no, John, I think. Sorry, John, I want to yeah. add on to that. Like that's yeah. what, um, what Omar was just speaking about, um, that censorship. There's a John D. Rockefeller quote. Um, he states, the ability to deal with people is as purchasable a commodity as sugar or coffee. And I will pay more for that ability than for any other under the sun, right? Like when you have billions of dollars, it's um, like pocket change, throwing your money around to keep everyone in your pocket. And when you hear of, you know, million dollars to this foundation, million dollars to this NGO, five million, six million, um, one billion, as high as one billion, these, this isn't a one, a single payment. This is over the course of like 60 months or even longer. And there's a reason for that, right? You step out of the lines and you're done and the money is gone. Right, right. 
all these organizations create just like um, everything in our society, things that are not sustainable. They have huge, they become huge, which huge offices, huge salaries, huge travel expenses, um, everything and everyone living large. And so they become completely dependent on this money and they are not going to do anything that, you know, um, risks that, risks that just like Omar was saying. Yeah. All right. Like it's well, just I, a complete tool of control. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, I think one of the things that we've touched on this before, um, that's evident running through the entire year and a half narrative in terms of, of the master narrative of, of, of what you read in mainstream media, what you get from governments. And we talked about this, the very last podcast, I believe is how seemingly intentionally vague and contradictory and confusing all the information is. Uh, and, and that just continues. You, 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 um, you, you see these articles appearing like the one I mentioned in Spike that contradicts their entire, you know, editorial policy and belief system. Uh, and, and uh, in Norway, there's a, there's a color scheme. It's one of these kindergarten color schemes. You know, we're on red. That's total shutdown. Green is totally open. And then I think there's yellow and orange. I don't know. But uh, the government announced they had, they had gone to green. They were reopening most of the country. And we are now green. We're no longer orange. Except that literally nothing changed. Nothing mm. changed not a single thing you still can't do all the things you couldn't do before including crossing the border yeah johan yeah continuing on this this vagueness and uh, uh opacity of data i just thought i'd move on to this issue it's been revealed that uh, the, the testing directives in the us will will render data on vaccine efficacy basically useless uh, because in effect, you're not going to test vaccinated people in the established uh, contact tracing framework, uh, other than in extraordinary circumstances, which of course will skew the data. Uh, so, so you're not going to get a lot of positive PCR results, uh, if I may state it that way, if you, if you test much less. So vaccinated populations will present with fewer cases than the non-vaccinated if you go with the, the PCR method. And I, I thought uh, to myself when I read this uh, that we cannot possibly have these kind of, of directives in Sweden, but, but to my honest uh, astonishment, we, we do. They're basically identical. So, so this means that you have some kind of uh, central directive, which, uh, which means that there's not going to be very much in the way of useful data to actually ascertain the efficacy of the vaccines uh, ever in a way. Right. Uh, so the well is kind of poisoned, and and then you have a uh, you have a testing regime that effectively supports the the marketing of these pharmaceuticals. And I was wondering if you know what the situation is in in India, Norway, Canada, and Sri Lanka on on this uh, testing uh, directive issue. Does uh, anybody um, anybody well, want want to answer I that? And then Pastor Varun, maybe he can tell us more about India. Um, all I can tell you is that um, not only here, but um, I know through colleagues uh, uh, in the U.S. as well, that what they're doing is actually quite funny. It's not just the not contact tracing, but they're saying you'll have to have symptoms 
yeah. in order to be considered reinfected. Well, that's great. Could we have that at both ends? <laughs> I mean, sure, I'll match you one if I can have that too. CT settings of 27 and one or two symptoms. Well, I think we could eliminate the whole thing if we did that globally. Yeah. <laughs> um, but on the front end, we have uh, all kinds of CT settings and this asymptomatic Bosch, but on the other side, hmm. uh, you know, they've got to have symptoms. And I think it's because, despite that, if you get Peter McCullough on here, um, he'll tell you that the number of people he's encountering in his practice reinfected hmm. are staggering. And wow. in case of Seychelles, where we had that huge post-vaccination surge, at least one third, according to the Seychelles government, had been vaccinated. Wow. And they're reinfected. So, yeah. you know, it's out there. They're just making it harder to document. Um, well, from the beginning, uh, there was a, there was a, um, and this relates to from the beginning, uh, there was an interview with Lee Merritt, who was a uh, naval surgeon, a spinal surgeon. And she did an interview with somebody the other day. Um, and again, you know, she struck me as politically conservative and probably um, her politics are very bad. Ultimately, uh, if she's a Navy lifer, that would be a safe guess. Uh, but she had she was very well informed. She's incredibly smart. She is a surgeon. And she talked about uh, the the extraordinary uh, uh, idiocy of of the way in which labels, the meaning of definitions and labels had been changing, mm. how this whole master narrative changed the definition of a case, for example. Mm. Uh, and, and that therefore at this point, uh, relying on any statistics from anybody is pointless mm. because, because the numbers are so corrupted and so tainted and they make no sense and everybody has an agenda and just, you know, give that up. Um, but, but there was also a speech this week in the Netherlands in, in parliament by, uh, Thierry Baudet, who is the head of a very right wing, um, party in, in the name of which escapes me in the Netherlands. And it was a brilliant little three minute rant that he gave about the lockdowns, about the, the war against children, about the insanity of masks and all of social distancing, all of these protocols that were, had no medical relevance whatsoever and on and on. But it was another case of um, the right wing. Mm. And I keep coming back to this and I open this for you know, general discussion from people, the 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 in the United States, the narrative and the the public perception of this pandemic has been shaped by the hatred of Donald Trump. We've said that before, but it but it still persists, and uh, people identify any criticism of the pandemic with being a supporter of Trump or the right wing or something. And the two states, of course, that first um, opened up uh, and, and eliminated all restrictions were Republican states, Texas and Florida. And now I think Arkansas and Iowa and different places. Um, and of course, you know, infection rates have have plummeted and there's been no problem. And, and um, predictably, uh, people are going about their lives and going to baseball games and 
and mass music events and so forth with no problem. And yet um, the media utterly ignores this, you know. Yeah. Can I read um, a little bit out of that paper that you sent us? Yeah, please. It's just um, in reference to what we're talking about, the vaccine, the, reinfec the reinfections and all this happening. So um, sterilizing immunity, whether through vaccine or recovery from natural infection, creates an immune memory strong enough to prevent a virus from infecting previously infected individuals or others as the virus no longer replicates sufficiently to be contagious. Non-sterilizing immunizations, on the other hand, reduce or prevent symptoms of disease, but they do not prevent viral infection. This difference under certain circumstances can result in unwanted evolutionary pressure on the virus and ample opportunity to strengthen, in effect, creating, in brackets, selecting for um, viral um, virulence, stronger variants, and severe disease two to four. So, I mean, when I read this, John, I hadn't heard people referencing the vaccines that are, or so, quote unquote vaccines, whatever you want to call them, the gene therapy um, as non-sterilizing immunizations. And I think that's super important that they're recognized as that and that people um, read up on what that is. And then it goes on to say non-sterilizing immunization of low risk populations to this usual spike protein may put unwanted evolutionary pressure on it to change in an unexpected direction. In other words, immunizing healthy individuals to the spike protein of 2020 will challenge mother nature to find ways to change this protein to adapt and escape the pressure from immunization. When this happens, it will be the weakest of the immunized who are put in danger all over again. And so then either in that paper, or another article about it, it just talks about the, um, of, you know, what these actually do, they can be effective against like a more severe reaction to the infection for, you know, maybe a few months. Like it's, right. it, this right. is a long-term forever program hmm. and it's designed that way. I can't stop thinking about the, the connection, the, the similarity uh, of the uh, the whole uh, the uh, narrative with the uh, 9/11 and uh, uh, the the series of uh, colonial wars that um, followed. Um, you know the, the vagueness, uh, the contradictions. Uh, people would question this or that, and uh, people get divided, and that brings about more fear and uh, destabilized society. And that would bring about uh, more draconian measures, excuses to uh, put people in certain places and uh, censorship and uh, all that. And, um, but it, it's, it's really, uh, um, it, this is a war uh, waged against the people and it's, it's really, um, uh, there's a function in this vagueness, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 maybe we can kind of shift just slightly to what one of the issues you just raised here, Yuki, which is, um, and I mentioned at the beginning, this, the agenda, if, if we are going to assume there is an agenda, um, connected to the reset and connected to, um, you know, uh, digital wallets and and vaccine passports and you know biotech hegemony and all of these things because 
otherwise, if 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 one refuses to entertain those topics somehow, what's behind that, then one is left having to explain why uh, a year and a half after this pandemic of a relatively mild virus uh, shut down the entire planet virtually, why there are still these extraordinary restrictions in place, uh, because there, there seems to be no medical justification for it. So it is an expression of something else. And, you know, I mentioned the bus to Abilene because I think that is a component in it because I really tend to believe whoever planned parts of this or had an agenda in mind, you know, the, with the Gates Foundation and Schwab and the World Economic Forum, all of this, whatever role these people played in in organizing this, this um, kind of global shutdown, uh, uh, that that has it, it had to have happened much, much with much less resistance than those planners originally thought. I think um, I can't believe anybody expected um, globally the the lack of resistance that that they've been met with. Now, you know, we also know there is there is a significant amount of resistance and there have been protests everywhere and and with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in some cases, um, which the media tends to downplay. But yeah, Johan. Yeah, speaking of resistance, I, I thought it would be great to to invite Varun to speak something or say something about his. Uh, he's in the middle of, of filming this uh, farmers protests uh, in India and uh, maybe he could uh, add some perspective pertaining to to biotech and, and GM issues in relation to to all of this. Mm. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll just give you a couple of anecdotes. Um, Two hundred villagers in a village <laughs> jumped into a river because they didn't want to take these shots, and there was a group of people who were running after them. Um, that's one. Uh, so the hesitancy in rural India is very high. I've seen a lot of videos and a lot of reports that are flooding in where uh, entire villages are asking these committees that are going to vaccinate people to leave. Some of them, have, uh. there's also been a little bit of violence, but there was a district magistrate who has taken the step of cutting off the electricity for an entire village that refused the inoculations. Oh. Um, then there was a there was another one recently where there was police on the street with a with a loudspeaker saying anybody who's not vaccinated will not be allowed to open their shops. Wow. So all of that kind of shit is going on, which is kind of and this, you know, like even my friends don't know about this. It's like in the cities, nobody is hearing about this at all. It's all just these small groups on Instagram or Telegram or whatever, wherever this is getting passed around. And so it's funny because, I mean, I'm in the South District, which is kind of well-to-do, so to speak, in Delhi. Once you leave the confines of this place, and when I've been traveling to the farmers' protest, life is back to normal. People are out on the streets and they're doing business and it's busy. It's been busy in the last two weeks, you know. And as soon as you enter back into this area of town, it's suddenly it it feels like I'm living in a movie. It's insane <laughs> like the amount of the amount of barricading and police and 
checks and all of that is just it's insanity man like it's the schizophrenia in the city is very scary in that sense because all of these people who are on the well if you want to call it the fringes of the middle class or the upper middle class they are living their life but everybody else is still caved into their houses paranoid talking about vaccinations setting up camps in residential areas asking begging hospitals to come and set up centers and things like that are going on and when you when i start talking about when i i mean in these kind of situations when i start telling people about looking at the data of adverse events which has been reported and looking at people's um, testimonies about what's happened in their lives because they've taken these shots then there is a, there is this i think it's a moment where it's they cannot process that this is possible they can't process the fact that something that the authorities have cleared could be that dangerous mm-hmm. that is actually causing death so that kind of a, it's 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 a very strange kind of um psychological veil that has fallen over mm-hmm. people at the at the protest though i mean now again uh, i was told that every weekend over the weekends 2000 2500 people are going to start coming back joining again because uh they had all gone back to the villages either they were afraid because of the the so called second wave or they had to tend to their farms and things like that but now they're coming back and we actually witnessed about 500 cars ourselves coming back with just packed with farmers and making a lot of noise and coming to the stage and things like that and <clears throat> i've spoken to many people about it i've also recorded a statement from a woman who um, a lot of people are just saying this covid bullshit is just another game of the government we don't believe it <clears throat> i saw a video today of of a sikh farmer who is calling out the who and the wto mm-hmm. and they burnt they burnt a, a life size image of bill gates they lit it on fire <laughs> so what's funny is that you know like you could call them illiterate you could call them uneducated you can call them whatever you want you can call them, but these people have far more insight about how the world works than anybody else i know who lives in uh, who lives in i don't know like modern industrial society so to speak i mean these are it's abs- it has been absolutely heartwarming and incredible to watch that happen mm. um yeah. omar you had yeah a couple of things one uh, just in echoing what varun was saying just outside colombo is a neighborhood called dehiwala where Uh, a once famous hotel called Mount Davinia uh, ruled the roost well in that neighborhood my uh, one of my uh, colleagues says that people go out on walks half of them don't have masks on even though we're in this sort of 24/7 uh, euphemistically called lockdown curfew um while the president is announcing that he wants to double the minimum wage for everyone uh, <laughs> while people um whole sectors are holding on by a thread but again in that neighborhood life's kind of normal the local produce guy shows up small shops are open uh and no but, but come into colombo uh and of course the barricades are there the military is there even though all the so-called positive testing um by the 
whatever you want to make of that, have only been about 150 cases in Colombo a day. Um, and I cannot fathom how you shut down 60% of your GDP uh, on that basis. Right. The, uh, hmm. the, the, the case about the, the gene therapy symptom suppressors posing as vaccines um, and the wisdom of uh, these lower middle class people who intuitively know bullshit maybe because they, they understand what it smells like and the rest of us have sanitized ourselves a little too much. But it, it's overwhelming when you think about the fact that 4,400 deaths as per the VAERS database in the US, which is more than 9-11, coming from a vac so-called vaccine, 10,000 in Europe, and the adverse effects, I'm told, um, are greater uh, than those from all other vaccines since we started recording this in 1995 combined. Mm. So the reason you have to offer ice cream cones and lottery tickets and dating apps and chase <laughs> people into rivers, um, and I think it was, you know, um, and hide them from their parents is not because it's so life-giving and beneficent. And so when people just assert this, and as Corey says, you know, anybody who looks into this knows that it's not lasting immunity. It's not even probably stopping transmissibility. And you may not have had COVID and this may give it to you. <laughs> but it releases yeah. spike proteins into your bloodstream. That's what we're hearing, that it doesn't stay centralized in your shoulder. Right. That's what I had read, too. Corey, you had a... Yeah, I mean, that, that is what they, what they... I mean, you can read that everywhere, what Omar's saying. There's no guarantee against spreading or um, spreading transmission. There's no guarantee you won't get infected. I, I mean, it's all so insane. I can't believe it that people, there's such an uptake. But I wanted to talk just for a minute about... Um, here's a Newsweek article from... Um, when is this last year, or sorry, no, it's not, February 12, 2021. Um, miraculous mRNA vaccines are only the beginning. And I keep on um, talking about this, the vac vaccine program is basically the launching pad of biotech going forward in the future. Um, the foundational bedrock biotech, right? This is like the ground zero. And so he's talking about the mRNA vaccine are now being um, administered across the globe and how this is such so amazing. Now he's saying they're also offering an early look at how the miraculous tools of the genetics revolution will transform our healthcare and our world over the coming years. But unless we can develop better ways to reap the great benefits while avoiding the potential harms of our Promethean technologies, our moment of triumph could send us, set us on a path to disaster. Now, what's interesting about this and his other work, um, the person that, and, and things to terms that people should pay attention to are basically scaling of biogenetic data, genetics revolution, genetic surveillance, genetic arms race. Um, the, the author of this article, where I just read that small um, section, he's a leading um, technology futurist and a member of the WHO, right? World Health Organization's wow, yeah. International Advisory Committee on Human Genome Editing. 
Um, and it's funny how Hiroyuki can feel or see these overlaps with 9-11 because this person was also an advisor on emergency pre preparedness after 9-11. So he was very heavily involved with that. Um, he served on U.S. National Security Council and the United Nations. He's a senior fellow of the Atlantic Council, and he's a member of the Council for Foreign Relations and a former White House fellow, Aspen Institute Crown Fellow. The Aspen Institute um, and works with um, the Business Roundtable in the U.S., which is the American arm of the Great Reset. And um, what else do I want to say about this? Oh, and the Council on Foreign Relations. Like when we think of who impl who's implementing this, though it really, it is World Economic Forum, but in this instance, it's working like an NGO um, for the Council on Foreign Relations who owns all the media and controls all the media. So you have these levels of ruling class and uh, near on the top tier is the Council on Foreign Relations. So this is very, very, very um, elite, elite status, ruling class, if you go back to 2016, you have the Council on Foreign Relations putting um, uh, forward um, basically instruction with the World Economic Forum doing um, press releases on the fourth industrial revolution and working together toward that. So there's a close relationship there as well. Now he's also written, people should check him out. His last name is M-E-T-Z-L. He has a couple of NGOs or websites that he has created as well as a book he's written. And then going back to what you've written a lot about John, in November of 2019, he wrote an article, is sex for reproduction about to become extinct? And it's about the future of, um, you know, having children in the future to have children naturally by having sex will become sort of taboo, right? And sort of a gross peasant thing. To have a baby, you will have, go to a doctor's office and you will use gene editing, right? And so this opens up, this, this agenda is about this, right? So what's happening now, this whole vaccine revolution, the real revolution is the genome editing going forward, like the edit, the fusion, of man with machine, right? That's what the fourth industrial revolu revolution right. is, the blurring and the fusion of man with machine, right? And, um, you know, the, fuse, the blurring and fusion of biological and physical worlds, uh, or sorry, digital worlds. And so blurring of all of this. And this is where all of this is headed. What they're establishing is a treasure trove of experimental, you know, uh, this is like, I, I mean, look at this, a global experiment, right? With just troves and troves and troves and troves of data to accelerate this huge genetics revolution, which is a huge part of this whole fourth industrial revolution. I'm done. Um, <laughs> no, well, but but right. And I was thinking about this today because they, they just released again, um, you know, eight gajillion uh, genetically modified mosquitoes. Uh, <clears throat> somewhere in Florida or somewhere, um, which is Gates, one of Gates' pet projects. Um, and there's nothing that Gates doesn't want to genetically modify. You know, there's there's nothing. And um, and he's been very influential with this. Uh, and and it is one of the driving um, economic engines 
for this last year and a half, the, 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 you know, the profit, uh, uh, the, the profits have, have migrated to certain, um, certain realms, certain technologies. And one of them is, is biotech. Uh, but, but there is also lurking, not even in the shadows, but almost in plain sight are, is this agenda that goes back and Corey, you have written about this. I have written about this. Other people certainly have, um, which is which is the depopulation agenda, and uh, the, you know Gates is intimately linked with that. The British royal family is linked with that. The European royal families are linked to that. You know the the avatars for this are are you know Jane Goodall and and David Attenborough, and um, and it is a it is a drum that gets beaten over and over and over in mainstream media that there's too many people. People are the problem. People are causing, um, uh, you know, too much pollution. And it, it's always the individual that is the problem. It is always the common man that is the problem. It's never the military or massive corporations or massive mining interests or any of that. Uh, and, and it's a, it's, it, it is something I tiptoe around a lot when I talk to people because, you know, there is a there is a knee jerk reaction in in many people um, who will who will claim, oh, that's absurd and that's a conspiracy theory. And what do you think? There's a group of people wanting to take over the world, blah, blah, blah. No, but I think I think there is enormous power in the the one percent um, that, you know, the migration of wealth on this planet has has transferred to the top one percent and they now wield enormous power they certainly own global media and uh they, one doesn't have to look any further than this last year and a half and and how the how the um the pandemic has been covered uh to to see proof of that because the reality is the the, the food experts and the world food bank and all of these people will tell you that the world can be fed three times over um, today, right this second, if if certain mechanisms were put in place, there's no shortage of food. But anyway, Johan, did you have yeah, your I hand have a, raised? Your virtual hand raised there? I did not have my virtual hand raised, John. But I I have a in the interests of representing the the title of the pod, I have a, a short musing on what I would say that the lack of original culture or kind of a a watering down of culture, but, but maybe that's too off topic for the moment. Maybe I should wait a little while. Well, I want to get to that, but Corey, you had something I know. So, well, I just wanted to add on to what you were saying about the eugenics. I mean, genetics revolution, quote unquote, is 20% century woke eugenics. I mean, this is eugenics rebranded. The number one um, goal um, that, the number one theme around this is the gene editing of humans. Right. right? Um, so, I mean, we can all just imagine where that will end up, where that's going to go to. When you see corporate influence, how corporate, um, you know, how people's minds basically are molded in the image of corporate, of corporate power and, you know, branding and logos and wh whose idea of, of beauty is what, you know what I mean? Right. Well, uh, this takes military. Yeah, and this is uh, yeah. Who who just spoke? Okay. Omar, go. And then I want to get back to Johan because that was exactly. But yeah, Omar, please. 
to build on what Corey and even what you were saying, and yes, um, um, you can, I don't know about whether somebody's trying to take over the world, but whether, as we said last time, it's somebody uh, pulling strings or whether it's the internal logic of disgusting um, organizations set up with a total indifference uh, to everyday lives driven by their own cancerous logic. But when you have Tony Blair being trotted out again, yeah, man. War criminal um, and um, openly lied all the destruction and havoc, uh, you know, being a poodle uh, to George W., Dick Cheney and that mob. But the Brits, of course, in those days had some spunk. They used to call him the right honorable gentleman from West Texas. The, <laughs> but... The unkindest cut of all, but he's standing there uh, trying to wreak sincerity while telling people, "No, we can't force everybody, but we can make their lives intolerable." <laughs> like, oh, thank you, Tony. Yeah. That's very different. <laughs> How magnanimous no. of you! I mean, just 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 spellbinding arrogance mm. from you know this 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 quack. Uh, there's somebody clearly a war criminal and why and of course it's and I think the one thing that we are hearing is that many people are realizing that that's just a little too well staged when you start getting these people being pulled out of the revolving uh, you know horror show and uh, I think it is fortunately even those who thought that we were all crazy conspiracy theorists it's getting down to the point where even they're saying, eh, maybe I'm going to stay away. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the, 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 I think there is enormous skepticism in, in you know, the, 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 the global populace. There clearly is enormous skepticism. There's a lot of hesitancy for people to going back and getting their second shot and, uh, and healthcare workers are refusing and going on strike. And we see this everywhere. And some of this, I want to get back to Johan's point about the, 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 the uh, erosion of culture in general. And, and of course this touches on indoctrination and, and mass media, electronic media, the, 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 um, the prevalence of it and the, the ubiquitous nature of, of, um, of media in general uh, has has created um, uh, a, a population amenable to to certain kinds of propaganda in a way that I think is unprecedented, actually. But Johan, why don't you talk about that a little more? Yeah, and this will probably go back to Hiroyuki and Varun uh, anyway. But I saw this uh, this remake of the 1994 TV miniseries The Stand which is uh, appropriate because it's a it's a Stephen King novel adaptation about a global pandemic uh, from a flu virus uh, nobody likes remakes we all know that and and it seems to be becoming more frequent but uh, something kind of struck me as odd when I compared this one to the original and the original from 94, it's not great in any particular sense. It's a, it's a good 90s novel adaptation with a, a couple of these Brat Pack actors and a few stars proper. But what, what amazed me was that the remake utterly failed to do justice to even the level of complexity of narrative and characters that was present in the original. To, to me, they all kind of felt like cardboard pastiches. Uh, and I think... 
I think an important part of this is that the remake could not convey the multitude of cultural and subcultural themes that were implicitly part of, of the original, as a matter of course, I suppose. Uh, in the original, I, I remember there was an attempt to portray the diversity of, of local American cultures, uh, dialects, uh, geographies, idioms, ways of life, everything. And, and all these more or less uh, unimportant background aspects that don't really matter to the logic of the narrative, but uh, would give it flesh and blood that situate the story in a real world that feels plausible to us. And, and almost all of this was actually gone or severely malplaced in the 25 years newer remake. And I kind of come back to this autism you spoke of, John. Uh, I, I think that many of these more subtle aspects of lived human experience are increasingly really gone, uh, kind of submerged in a global digital monoculture. And I think people in general are also less and less able to appreciate and understand them when they are present. Uh, kind of like digital natives don't get a lot of the things that are taken for granted in the narrative background of, of something as relatively recent as 94, like minor things as idioms and the ways in which they are couched. And I was just wondering what your perspectives are on this especially those of you who work more closely with, with art and, and filmmaking and, and related stuff, like how this, how we are uprooted from a familiarity with uh, local uh, and um, locally anchored cultures, uh, how this can reflect that kind of process. Well, I will just say one quick anecdote, um, because there's no question that, I mean, when I began working in Hollywood, um, uh, and I worked there as a as a feature writer, staff writer for about 14 years it was 1985. And um, I know the erosion in in um, the quality of product that came out of Hollywood. Certain it just, you know, the, the watershed moment was probably in the late 70s when Star Wars became a big hit. Um, and and um, the studio followed that template. But. Uh, I talked to an editor once who did editing of classic movies for television um, because they always have to, you know, cut it up to make room for commercials and so forth, or they used to. I mean, cable has changed a lot of this, but um, and she said, oh, well, it's very easy to edit a film made from the 80s or 90s um, because it almost doesn't matter what I cut out of it. Uh, she said, you know, the story's incoherent anyway, and um, nobody notices what I've cut out or left in it. It doesn't matter. It's almost arbitrary. She goes, if I have to edit a film made in the 1940s, it's infinitely more difficult because uh, I, I have to be careful not to um, cut away from key plot points or, or character moments or establishment of, of, you know, second or tertiary um, character development and on and on and on. Um, she said it's very, very hard because every shot and every sequence had a purpose and every character's scene had a purpose and every line of dialogue in some way or other had a purpose. And, and that really is all gone. I mean, you can't, you can't, and there are countless directors who, who worked in Hollywood in this, you know, the 70s and 80s, John Borman, for example, um, Brian De Palma, um, who, who will echo the same thing. I mean, it became a corporate um, amusement park ride or something, and, and it, it was studios became only interested in, 
in summer blockbusters and on and on and on. But but it, it has also been the loss of an audience for quality material. Um, and and that's a huge topic. And I obviously write about it a lot. But um, it it is uh, it it is not it is not um, what's the word I'm looking for? It is not unrelated to the whole discussion of this pandemic and and the lockdowns and and all of the protocols that have been put in place and and the protocols that have persisted you know that they have they have continued on past any rational um justification i mean there just isn't any anymore and it's strange the other strange thing is and i welcome anybody's comments on this um, the other strange thing is that there are parts of the country in the U.S. Uh, that have returned to normal. Uh, people don't wear masks. People go to whatever events they want. And yet there are other places in which things are very strict and locked down and you must wear a mask. You're not allowed into certain um, grocery stores and so forth without a mask. You have to stand six feet apart, et cetera, et cetera. Schools that are still run with children wearing masks and so forth. Um, and, and this kind of contradiction seems, uh, people seem not to notice that this contradiction exists, you know, town by town, state by state, sometimes neighborhood by neighborhood. It's a, it's a very curious aspect of this entire thing. But I think, I think, um, I think we are kind of moving towards, uh, I think we're we're moving towards a collective pivot. Whatever the 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 World Economic Forum and WHO and CDC and all of these groups and U.S. government and whatever their intention was with this to normalize mass surveillance and and the whole biotech revolution, fourth industrial revolution, all of it. Um, we're we're entering a phase where. Uh, they're they're starting to throw a few people under the bus as scapegoats. Um, Fauci may be one of them, uh, and and pivoting and retooling and rebranding um, the the entire narrative. That's my sense, anyway. But um, we'll see, Corey. I just wanted to add that Ontario can't, um, it's the same thing. There's well to go into phase one of reopening. So they say. Um, it's this uh, color-coded system that reminds me of the war on terror. Same thing is in place. And then green was based on, I believe, 60, at one point, 60% of the population had to be vaccinated before they would open. I guess that number is now over 65%. And then if you go 18 or older, it's even higher, above 70%. And yet nothing's open. Everything's still shut down. Um, our downtown looks like um, just a, a, a shithole, like it's homeless, <laughs> everything um, closed, you know, everything covered. It, it's just cesspool. It looks like hell. It looks like hell, honestly, yeah. but it doesn't matter anymore. If you want to look at something beautiful, go home and look at and and change your screensaver, right? Like, don't go downtown. Don't go out. And right. so there's all that. Nothing's changed. Everyone still has masks, even outside. Um, uh, the majority of people wear masks inside. It's 99 out of every 100 people have a mask on. Everyone's um, away from each other. And yet people aren't really afraid at all to go to Costco or the liquor store or wherever else they want to go. So it's still a lot of posturing. 
Um, but it's also like we talked about before, sort of like this um, people bonded to this identity or something or found purpose in this, right? Like their, right. their, their role in the war effort. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And a superiority that comes with your vaccination, being able to judge others. Right. And so there's that aspect as well. John, um, um, yeah. You're, uh, you know, you're, you wrote a piece recently about thoughts on turning 70. Um, and uh, you <laughs> yeah, took, don't remind me. You, you yeah. took up, you reminded me, but <laughs> you took up the cudgel of what Johan was talking about in speaking about Kish. And, yeah. you know, just the sheer, but there was a moment, I mean, you can talk about the Kish part. Uh, which of course has become an emblem of the sort of sheer nothingness of uh, our ability to appreciate. Uh, I remember uh, some time ago when uh, Vladimir Nabokov, he was giving his lectures on literature and he said that, um, you know you're in the presence of art, not with your head, but with your spinal cord. <laughs> There's a telltale tingle he said in that wick of humanity. And he said, if you lose the ability to appreciate that, then you'd better go back to your zap guns and comic books because there's nothing else left. You used a phrase that I admire enormously. And um, pardon me, I probably got it all wrong, but you inspired it. So even if I got it wrong, <laughs> you can take your mouths for it. And there was a moment you talked about being in the presence of things that you aesthetically admired and you said they were almost unbearably beautiful. And I right. love that. You said unbearably beautiful because they required something from you to be able to be taken in their fullness. And it right. is that, it's that giving, it's that energy that this sort of tinsel culture, this sort of passive consumerist culture will never get us uh, to come forth. I mean, there's a, Logan wrote a play about Rothko called Red and about oh, yeah. his, um, his paintings in the Four Seasons restaurant in New York and removing them. And there's a moment when this apprentice of his says, so you think I actually should go and study Leonardo, even though, uh, you know, I'm working with Rothko. He said, I don't think you should pick up a paintbrush if you haven't read Plato. <laughs> Leonardo. Yeah. Right, right. Well, I mean, years ago, Gary Snyder was talking, the poet Gary Snyder was talking to a group and somebody um, <clears throat> asked what, what a young poet should study, what he should do to learn to, to become a, a later a mature um, poet of, of real ability. And uh, Snyder said, go learn carpentry. Um, or something like that, go learn something and learn to do it very well. Uh, that, that kind of idea would seem really crazy today. People just don't do that. People don't apprentice themselves. People don't, young students don't have that level of curiosity and sense of purpose culturally anymore. And uh, it, is, it is, you know, we see the result around us all the time but but there's something else i i my experience when i before i wrote that recent blog post my experience was 
I had seen a newsreel of, um, as it happened, Berlin uh, in the 1960s. It was black and white, just newsreel of a busy day um, uh, in downtown Berlin. And, uh, and it really struck me that I remembered, I felt something when I looked at that. I thought, I remember crowded streets in New York and Los Angeles and London, places I lived uh, from, from the 60s and even before that when I was a boy. And something has gone missing from, from those crowd scenes today, even pre-pandemic. If you were to go outside, you don't sense that same kind of energy. Um, and, and I think that speaks to the, the, the um, degradation of culture overall. There is some kind of energetic loss deficit that exists out there and um you know we are living in its wake now uh somehow and and you know the the fact that people stay home what Corey was saying people stay home and change their screensaver and you, there's a you know a cottage industry now in in virtual tourism i love that um but but this has been going on for 40 years or more 50 years there has been a gradual incremental encouragement for people to stay home when hbo broke on the scene it was home box office the idea being you know it was better to watch a movie at home than all the you know the messiness of going to the theater and finding a parking place and, and having the expense of buying popcorn and whatever better to just stay home you could customize the experience and 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 that was just a moment in a and i think you know, a brick by brick evolution of of um, that that whatever mechanisms were employed, whether it was accidental or intentional, doesn't matter. It there was this encouragement to a restriction of movement. Tourism got constant bad press. Oh, tourists are ruining the planet. Tourism is bad. It destroys the environment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and and uh that's become linked with a lot of the propaganda around the fourth industrial revolution. It's become linked with, um, with the pandemic. We saw earlier the Boston marathon bombing was the, one of the first trial runs for locking down a city um, in a state of emergency to find two guys um, and both of whom were patsies, but never mind that. Um, and, and, uh, of course, a lot of this was uh, accelerated with 9-11. That became the justification for the Patriot Act and, and all kinds of erosions of civil liberties and, and um, so forth and so on. Uh, so I, I don't think it's new. And I think a lot of a lot of what we're talking about preceded the pandemic. The, the pandemic has just been a crystallization of forces that were already in play. Now there is a separate agenda clearly, and it's connected to biotech and all of that. I don't know, I can't, you know, I don't pretend to know the, the real reasons or causes for it. I can speculate, I can guess, you know, I know the influence of all the jillionaires out there, but, um, but I think one forgets that, that a lot of the problems we're talking about and, and the things that depress us all in varying ways preceded the pandemic. And, and it's been a part of advanced capitalism for 50 years, probably. I mean, you, all you have to do is read Henry Miller's books, 
the air conditioned nightmare was written in 1945 and it sounds like he could have written it yesterday you know um because what he's talking about is what you see around you today um and and uh it's that's i think worth pondering but anyway um anybody else here yuki well i think uh uh what you said about well, the the whole discussion you presented is is really a, a comprehensive uh, presentation of what's going on, and uh, they all connect in uh, uh, different ways uh, cohesively. I think, unfortunately, uh, it does make sense uh, the dumbing down of the. Um, uh, the people, uh, the destruction of culture, uh, those things are done to perpetuate the uh, uh, integrity of the capitalist accumulation, um, the uh, productivity efficiencies, and all those things would go against the uh, um, what you described about the pursuit of craft, um, like the, the learning about carpentry requires observation of materials, learning about um, how to do things right. And all those things are, you know, they contradict with the uh, uh, productivity and efficiency. And uh, it, 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 then the products are gonna be uh, what we have today, plastic uh, things that would break all the time so that they can, <laughs> replace it with something else and uh and they can sell tools to take care of all that and uh uh people are gonna get frustrated and uh, we need medication for that and all those things uh this is this is the way to uh perpetuate the capitalism by destroying uh humanity and nature basically and yeah. and this direction coincide with the uh depopulation yeah, it absolutely does. So it it's, absolutely. it's it's uh, it's it's it, it 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 all makes sense. It's a uh, um, it's a very very bad situation. <laughs> <laughs> Corey, uh, I well touching upon beauty, and I that is a beautiful another beautiful piece that you wrote. Um, I will always be a firm believer that so much of our um, problems now in, in our Western quote unquote, culture, society, do, um, do come from that loss of beauty, whether we realize it, whether we're conscious of that or not. I think a lot of our problems stem to, to that as a root problem, the loss of beauty. But I wanted to also touch base on when you were talking about the framing of home and staying home and you know, again, narrative, storytelling, messaging. Um, I, I stumbled across something like that recently with Lego. And I was looking up, I was doing a, um, I haven't been on Twitter for a while, um, but I was doing a thread on, what is her name? On um, Teresa Tam, the chief, what is she? The Canada's chief health officer. Anyway, I was doing a thread on her and I noticed within her um, tweet, she had promoted promoted this Lego thing on this I thought, well, that's really interesting because Lego is um, a key partner in the fourth industrial revolution. And so even if you don't know what that is, they will be shaping and molding um, the ideology of your child's mind, right? right. With um, the data that they need um, because 
obviously the children will be coming into this. So anyway, um, and it's interesting because then if you start, start searching Lego and Trudeau and that, you will find how in media they work it into, um, a, in, into articles. For example, on March 16, 2020, so this is just a few days after the pandemic is announced, an actual headline is, quote, you can run a G7 country from home, Canada's Trudeau, relies on phone lines and Lego. Like wow. that, that's the main title. And then you can find it all over, just references and little tiny highlights to Lego, right? Amazing, yeah. Well, yeah, um, uh, I, I, you know, there's funny things. I tend to see the world today in, um, um, in kind of allegorical ways, I guess me, I tend to feel it's unavoidable, but that could just be me. Um, but, but Biden recently canceled the open skies treaty. Now this was not a significant treaty and it's accompanied by the open lands treaty. What that means is this was first floated in the 1950s by Dwight Eisenhower, but it was rejected by the Soviet union. What it meant is that you had, um, you could fly, over any airspace of any country without impediment. You were allowed to do that in limited ways. And diplomats, the open lands thing, the diplomats stationed in a particular country were allowed the freedom to drive around unaccompanied um, and without surveillance to, to go where they wished. Now this has been revoked. Um, so it's just another contraction of, of um, autonomous movement in a sense and it, it becomes a kind of allegory it's very curious i think um again you know not not a significant treaty and not one of of probably um lasting import but still interesting that it didn't happen the other way around and uh the the, the encouragement to to stay home and to not travel and to not move about it's it's been deemed irresponsible and um and selfish you know, you are a first world uh you know privileged uh polluter of the you know uh, the global nature and so forth and so on nobody ever mentions the military or wars or you know deep sea mining or any of this that never enters the narrative the narrative is kept um <clears throat> at a kitsch level, in fact, at a at a almost fourth grade level, that's that's how people narrate their lives to themselves um, at at a all sort of um, run dick run see dick run, um, you know, early reader. That's that's uh, almost uh, the level at which public discourse operates a lot of the time. Yeah, Johan. Johan, I, I see. Oh, myself. there. Okay. There I am. Oh, and uh, yeah. In, in connection to this, I thought about what, what Omar said uh, here about the, the sublimity of, of true art and how it uh, demands a response from U.S. opposed to the consumer kitsch, the the air conditioned uh, nightmare, the sterility of, of corporate monoculture. I think it connects clearly also to the fact that it's much more difficult to coerce a resilient local culture 
that it creates and sustains its own narratives in an organic manner in relation to the people around you that you know and, and care about. And I suspect that this is, this is something like this we're seeing in the Indian villages that exhibit this, uh, this vaccine hesitancy that uh, Varun described. Mm. Um, yeah, John, the, um, the thing that you were just uh, referencing as well, the sort of uh, staying home, um, I think that there was this uh, book that came out talking about the coddling of the American mind when they looked at the next generation that we were sort of raising uh, averse to risk to be challenged was an affront, to be made uncomfortable was an act of violence. We used to think that whatever didn't kill you made you stronger, but here it was whatever didn't uh, kill you made you weaker um, or, or whatever it was. And I think it's, it's very unfortunate because the more passivity becomes the evangel. Passivity in your aesthetic uh, passivity in your ability to communicate, staying away from people and uh, sending off career-destroying messages on social media, but never being able to actually meet somebody, have a dialogue, a discussion, uh, to engage in the to and fro. Um, so the more life becomes remote, mm. uh, detached, uh, where we can create these imaginary personas, hence the virtue signaling and all of this bunk. And the moment anybody um, goes beneath that, um, you know, hits it a little, lances the boil a little bit, my mm. God, there's a volcanic eruption mm. uh, that only comes when some, uh, some pet peeve, you can, some pet prejudice uh, or private dogma you can't live without has been destabilized mm. and you have committed violence because you made that person uncomfortable. Right, um, well, yeah. Wonderful H.L. Mencken line when somebody said, what's your job? He said, my job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Yeah, it's a famous line, yeah. Um, uh, I, I want to kind of begin wrapping up a little bit Um uh, and and Varun, if you have any sort of other observations, please. Um, yeah, I think largely there has been an appropriation of the collective emotionality because of perpetual streaming of violence through news of war. So, of course, there's always the, the perpetuation of literal war, but also that the vast audience that is witnessing this is drilled with the idea of helplessness and powerlessness entirely. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and so you're, you're disconnecting them from, well, you're disconnecting the audience from real world events, which they have no control over. And once you do that continuously, and you've, you've kind of manufactured this idea that the world is a dangerous place. Other people are dangerous all the time. And I think what has happened now in the last year is that coming to a head completely. That's yes. one thing. The other thing is that the, the cognitive map has been, I mean, the infiltration has been so deep now with like, this was, I think, the last stage where they've tried to infiltrate how people think 
it's not just about what they are thinking and that is from and which kind of goes back to what everybody was talking about before is that is i mean censorship aside is is not just what you can see and what you can't see it's also how you can see it and how you can think it or how you can think about it and criticality and which goes back to how you Corey was also saying about narratives and so are you is that the narratives of pop culture generally have become insular to the individual as as an indulgent existence in modern civilization and so the role of the individual has been transferred or transmuted into just passive consumerism where it is completely helpless with what is happening in the world at large it has been disconnected from the world so that's why i think that a lot more people are not being able to do what should have been done in the middle of last year is get out on the street and ask your authorities to stop what they're doing exactly you know, but i think yeah. that's and the other thing i'll just add really quick was that uh, no, no, i please. think it's um i think it's important to look at or rake kurtzwald's predictions they're on his wikipedia page and when i looked at those it became quite clear that all the steps and how the media is being managed and what kind of research is being funded is geared towards that kind of direction this kind of delusional plan of putting artificially <laughs> intelligent technology or in the known universe so that you can connect to the godhead this is this is literally written as one of the predictions that he's made and i think yeah no i know <laughs> and so i mean, i think I mean, artificial bodies with artificial minds suits a plan where you need a programmable army that can go and implement this project or even if you want to try it you know and i think that that this stem that this anthropocentric arrogant yeah idea that comes from being so far disconnected from the living organism which we are part of mm. is absolutely pathologically insane i think all of it is pathologically completely insane and they've they've managed to they've managed to convince most of the public i think through aspirational cycles that this is the way life is so the cognitive map has been completely blinkered and put into a prison cell already and now we are basically what we are allowing to happen is that you're allowing the physical bodies to be to be put into prison cells of the four kind of four walls of your own house essentially so it's it's kind of like like you were saying before is that it's been a long time since this has been going on and i think that the 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 intangible aspects of the individual and the collective were already appropriated and i think now yeah those people like would will start to become frustrated and they will they will need to look for inspiration from people who live with the earth i think that's what's going to eventually start happening yeah that's very good i think um uh and and i agree and and i think we're seeing that the thing that's been minimized i'm just going to wrap up here quickly but but the, i think one of the things we're seeing that that not enough people have talked about and and hasn't been um part of the public discourse or debate at all 
um, has to do over the last year and a half with the psychological effects of this whole this whole um, pandemic narrative um, and and the restrictions and so forth. People keep thinking, well, it's going to end tomorrow. I just want to deal with it. I'll wear the mask, whatever, whatever, and then it'll all be done with and and we'll return to normal. Um, and there will not be a return to normal. There is no normal anymore. Um, certain things may resemble normal, but it's not going to really go back to normal because it wasn't normal before. Um, it's, it's exactly what you said, Varun. Um, and, and I think people are suffering, uh, you know, mental cognitive uh, damage from this whole thing. And, and it's the, the implications and repercussions um, won't be realized for, for years to come yet. Uh, but but this is a moment where, uh, you know, the collective Western mind, if not the global mind, uh, is is um, is being permanently impaired somehow. Um, OK, anybody else? Last thoughts from well, anyone? You know what? I think that's the uh, uh, basic answer to the uh, uh, there's a big question. Why? There's no uh, resistance. There, there's no um, opposition uh, because people are numb and people are um, uh, put through this framework. And uh, the only channels they are allowed are those virtue signaling and uh, obeying of those things. So that's what we are looking at here. It's uh, yeah. There's just uh, uh, the. Uh, when the Syrian refugee crisis was going on, at the same time, uh, the series Game of Thrones was uh, being telecast on Netflix or whatever. And there was a very famous picture of a child that washed up on a shore, which made the news. And I yeah. think it was in proximity when there was a really big event in this fictional series. There were literally millions of videos of reactions of a fictional character dying, where people are crying, but I didn't see even one which had to do with that baby drowning and washing up ashore. And that for me is a really big telling sign of how much our emotions have been completely imperialized and colonized by the fiction realm, rather than what is going on in the real world. Um, John, uh, just to add one quick thought, Varun, um, I fully agree it's worse now than ever. And I'll, I'll add one little depressing point and maybe one small encouraging point. Um, I, I was involved for a long time as a conversation for another time with the Shaw Festival. And Shaw wrote a play called Heartbreak House uh, as the European elites waited, I'm writing a piece on it. And he said that when bodies were littering all over Europe, nobody would look up from their toast uh, and egg, uh, but when the Lusitania sank with these uh, well-heeled celebrities, my God, everybody stopped. Uh, and it was, uh, it, it was an existential crisis, though every day the youth were being slaughtered for reasons that nobody could remember. So we've been there before. It may right. be more activated. Um, the, the positive side, just talking about the Syrians, is that sometimes despite the inhumanity, you have only to see the pictures of those people celebrating their sovereignty and having sometimes somehow made it through that ordeal. Mm -hmm. 
to see that even even ugly empires don't always succeed. Right. You well, know, you know, I, it it reminds me that I mean because I think you know there there as I said before there are people that are very skeptical. I think the working class as a generalization is much more skeptical, and there's been enormous resistance to this, and there've been protests, and they've had an effect. There's no question. But even the people that are skeptical and see through the bullshit and recognize propaganda when they are presented with it, they are still caught in this giant system of disinformation and and domination. And it reminds me of Adorno's famous quote that a wrong life cannot be lived rightly. Um, And in a sense, you know, we are all faced with with this problem because because everything is wrong. And um, as you, you struggle to to find the truth in things. Um, but sometimes it 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 um, it feels extraordinarily futile to, to, to that struggle. And and um, that's what one of the challenges, I suppose. Um, all right. Uh, I really want to thank everybody. This was a terrific conversation and we will do it again. I hope I invite every one of you back. Um, and uh, uh, Corey, thank you. I'm glad you made it this time. Omar, Hiroyuki, Johan, and Varun. Uh, and this should be up tomorrow. I'll send you all the link. And um, Jack Littman, thank you, as always, for um, helping with the editing and so forth. So, all right. I will talk to you all soon. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.